0: the insights that I have had in doing these oral histories and conducted interviews whether it's in you know like Harlan County or Greene County or Hawkins County Tennessee or Bristol was how connected the black communities were in like for instance like the black communities in Harlan County had strong connections to the black communities in Hamblin County Tennessee and there was lots of moving back and forth between those communities and the schools played each other during segregation. And so that's kind of further solidified those ties. And it's been amazing for me to see how interconnected in Southwest Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, and Eastern Tennessee, the black communities were with each other. I've never heard any any interview where the border actually meant anything. And I think that that's really been a strong insight that I've been trying to like pick at and try to figure out like how do we illustrate that that interconnectivity that the black communities had in the same way that you can't separate black appalachian culture from appalachian culture you can't separate these black communities into states Um, that's been a really interesting insight to me and i'm trying to figure out how to illustrate that
1: that was william isom director of black in appalachia a community history project documenting black communities throughout central and southern Appalachia. I'm Rachel Geringer, and you're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT. In this episode, I sit down with William Isom and Terrence Harris to learn more about the history of the project and the upcoming Black and Appalachia podcast. Along the way, we'll hear excerpts from some of the oral history interviews in the Black and Appalachia Community Archive. But first, William and Terrence introduce themselves and the project as a whole.
0: I'm William Isom. I live in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I'm uh, the director for Black and Appalachia Project.
2: My name is Terrence. I am currently uh, residing in Knoxville, Tennessee, from Chicago originally, and I am the audio director and producer of Black and Appalachia as well.
1: So, what is the Black and Appalachia Project for folks who've never heard of it?
0: Yeah, so it's it's um it's a project that um is basically a collaboration between East Tennessee PBS, uh, universities and residents. And so it's a project to raise the visibility and help preserve and tell the stories and black narratives of uh, Central and Southern Appalachia.
1: And what is some of the history of the project? Like how long has it been happening? How did it start?
0: So the project started uh, through East Tennessee PBS. And so the thing that East Tennessee PBS does, is produce short local documentaries and so we started out making short these short documentaries about black history and black stories in the region and something that we realized early on was that there's a whole lot more work that needs to be done in regards to telling these black narratives and different kind of avenues that we needed to take not just to come in and kind of extract these stories out for documentaries but Try to provide some kind of broader support for communities in telling their own stories.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And so what that that looked like was we discovered that that people had a lot of materials in their houses, like in their basement, in like rubber made containers. And um, so then we it felt really irresponsible to, to come in and make a documentary about a, a community and then see all these materials that were, and oftentimes not being stored properly or in danger of being thrown away because somebody was elderly and they may pass away. And so what we begin to do was trying to figure out, okay, now that we see this need for materials and we know that there's a a lack of available black narratives in the region, even like internally in the region. And so we developed this community history day kind of a format where community members would bring in their items and we would digitize them, catalog them, do oral histories at the same time, and then make those things available on a community history database. All these things are free and available online. And so within that process, we could also give them digital copies of their stuff that they could have. And also we would have librarians or archivists on hand to kind of Give some advice, like maybe you don't like store it in this. Like take the staples out of this. Here's the here's a folder that you might want to store this stuff in. Take the tape off of it, and things like that. Just kind of give some people basic advice around their collections. And so, even even out of that, we the need continued to expand. And so one of the things that we've uh, also done was a lot of the documentaries that we do are are kind of like you know, dead black and white history where it's, it's like older, older historical narratives. uh, But these communities are still alive and thriving and living. And so we also kind of bring in a rotating cast of documentary photographers to go with us on these documentation projects. So that, that then these, these street portraits and these, 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 communities can be documented in full and living color so that people can say hey look like our community is alive and vibrant and it's not dying and not everybody's leaving and so that's was kind of another component and so out of all that um, now we've started to engage in other feeling other needs in the community um, building out you know black history displays for the Kingsport the city of kingsport so that they can have a traveling black history display about Kingsport's black history which is something that didn't exist or mapping the old black business district in um bristol tennessee or bristol virginia um because it's been urban urban removed like most other black business districts in the um in our region in the cities um and so like mapping that so people can see like what businesses were where who who were the business owners and uh, where was that at and so um, and and so also we've feeling the need for like um, museums like the East Tennessee History Center has a black history display and so we're able to provide you know segments of short documentaries specific to Knoxville for that black history display and so and then also community groups want materials you know kind of shiny cool looking materials to be able to exhibit their own black history. And so sometimes community organizations, particularly in Greenville, Tennessee, we um, put together all the oral histories that we had conducted there and they've got a kind of a a multimedia exhibit that rotates the, just plays the oral histories on a loop. And so uh, that's a way for them to uh, provide support for them and it's a way for them to exhibit uh, that they are actually there.
1: Um, what kinds of like materials were you finding that people had that needed to be preserved when you were talking about removing the tape and things? I was wondering like what kinds of things people were bringing in.
0: People were bringing in like lots of photographs. Um, Photographs were primarily the, the items that people were bringing in, but also bringing in like diplomas from now like you know, now gone black schools, black primary, black high schools in the region. So people were bringing in diplomas for that. People were bringing in uh, home movies uh, from, like, the May Day celebration in, in Bristol, Virginia, at the black high school, that Douglas High School. Um, people were bringing in old... Um, uh, ration books, stamp books from, I guess, World War II, you know, yeah. and it like had their name and like what they got and what their rations were. And um, yeah, so things like that. It's mostly photographs, though.
1: What is kind of the like geographic scope of where you all are working?
0: Uh, right now, the, the the geographic scope of where, where the project's working at is is kind of scattered. Uh, we, we, we're doing work in southeastern Ohio, Gallia County, Ohio specifically. We're doing some work in eastern Kentucky, uh, Bell County, Harlan, Floyd, um, a little bit in Letcher, but the work in Letcher is primarily research and compiling data on the black communities there. Um, we're doing some work in Wise County, Virginia, um, Lee County, Virginia, Scott County, Virginia. Um, and then uh, many of the communities in East Tennessee. Since we're out in Knoxville, that's kind of where we spend a lot of our time and then branch out to these other communities to do work. So we've not did any work in West Virginia, but um, we're, we're trying to expand capacity enough so that we can get over to West Virginia, particularly Bluefield, I think, is a really has some really interesting history.
1: Next up, we'll hear some of William Isom's interview with Carita Brown, which was recorded in St. Louis, Missouri, on Labor Day, 2018. Carita Brown is a professor of sociology at the University of California in Los Angeles, and she's the author of the book *Gone Home: Race and Roots Across Appalachia*. In this excerpt, Brown tells a story of Black migration in and through Kentucky via her own family story. My name
4: is Carita Brown and I'm from Long Island, New York, originally from a little town called Uniondale. And um, I currently live in Los Angeles and I'm a professor of sociology and African-American studies at UCLA. My parents are both born and reared in Lynch, Kentucky, um, a little coal mining town or formerly a uh, company-owned coal mining town up in uh, the valley on the top of a mountain. My my family originates from Alabama, or at least that's the origin point that we know of, uh, you know, before slavery. So all four of my grandparents are from Alabama, um, from Pritchard, a place called Bologi, Mobile, Alabama, and uh, Bessemer. Um, and all four of my grandparents migrated from Alabama to Eastern Kentucky, to Lynch, Kentucky, so my granddaddies could uh, pursue a career in coal mining. And that is what they did for their entire lives. So combined between my two grandfathers, um, they've served almost 80 years in in the mining industry. And my grandmothers were homemakers um, in Lynch, Kentucky, where they raised uh, 14, and 11 children, respectively. So we can uh, think about the black migration into and out of Eastern Kentucky kind of in two phases. Um, so first is how they got there. Uh, most black folks who were um, living in those coal towns, working as miners, were not uh, born or raised there. They, there. There was a distinct migration into the region um, and I'm talking about for the industry um, um, and the majority of those men were recruited from Alabama and that was for a very specific reason because there were coal mines in Alabama and in fact Alabama is um, the most mineral rich state in the Deep South Right. So um, there is a long tradition of coal, iron and ore mining there. Um, And many of the companies that were setting up shop in Harlan County owned mines in Alabama. So they knew exactly where to get the labor. They also knew that um, most of the coal mining, black coal mining labor, um, in Alabama was being sourced from convict leasing. So it was very easy and attractive to lure um, um, potential laborers to migrate to eastern Kentucky. It was an easy sell. Um, so one thing you need to know about that is, okay, so then how do they get there? It's the, you know, early 1900s, the post-reconstruction era. Uh, Alabama was a um, wretched um Uh, environment in terms of just racial violence. So it wasn't just easy to get up and decide to migrate. So the companies um, sent labor agents to go get um, um, uh, men to, to agree to migrate to Eastern Kentucky. And so for example, in Lynch, there was this guy named Limehouse, White guy, they say that he was skinny and he used to wear a straw hat. He drove a truck that carried watermelon and sugar cane and corn, things like that, and men. And he would smuggle black men from Alabama, sometimes in the middle of the night, and bring them to lynch. Once they'd work off uh, whatever agreement they had with Limehouse, Limehouse would then agree to go back and get their wives and their children. So that's how many of the early families got there. Now, of course, you had folks who hoboed, who you know migrated on their own volition. That was there too, but you know these labor agents played a tremendous role in getting a lot of the increased um, black migration. Specifically, and I'm talking like Harlan County coal towns, because that's what I know the best. Um, how did black folks get out? Um, so, so if we kind of look at this on a generational arc, um, you had from 1910 to about 1940, the black population in Harlan County alone goes from 2% to 10%. That is a huge um, population increase, right? But between 1940 and 1970, Harlan County lost 70% of its black population. It's like so overnight in one generation, now you see them, now you don't. Um, so the impetus for uh, the mass out-migration was obvious. So the mines were starting to close down, um, and the mining industry was racialized like all other uh, uh, labor in the uh, US and around the world. So they who did they lay off first? Black folks, you gotta go. Um, this not only impacted Uh, men who were currently employed in the mines but it was very clear that there would be no job opportunities for their children. So all adults in the community really embraced um, you know um, instilling in their kids from a very young age you cannot stay here. There is no future for you here in the mines. You have to be not only prepared to leave this place but you have to be prepared to compete in an integrated society, which is something that none of them had ever done, right? So they're setting their kids up to be these historical change agents. With that being said, at the same time, the African American Great Migration is booming, right? Black folks are moving from all over the South, and you know, the deep South. They're leaving from Georgia and Alabama, what these Kentucky black folks' parents had done a generation ago, It's starting to uptick in like a huge way in the South. And so how that migration is going around the 1940s, 1950s, folks aren't stopping in layover stops that are close to where they're from. They're going straight from Bessemer to New York City, straight to DC, straight to Detroit. And you know, that's where the jobs were at that time. Well, you go back up to the mountain where my mom and dad were growing up. Where did they go for the summers? When they were on vacation, to visit those very cousins, who might have been from originally from Alabama, who had migrated to Cleveland, who had migrated earlier to New York, and they'd go visit them for the summers. What does that do? It plants a seed. When I grow up, I'm moving to New York. That's what my father did. My mom would have ended up in Cleveland, but she fell in love with my dad. So, um, you know, that's how my brother and I, you know, came to be born and raised in in New York, but their migration story is very emblematic of how it kind of unfolded for many families uh, during that generation uh, of the out-migration, which really started around your 1940s, 50s, and 60s.
1: That was Carita Brown, a professor of sociology at UCLA, describing African-American migration from the Deep South into the eastern Kentucky coal fields, and then, when coal jobs declined, on north to cities in the Rust Belt and the Northeast. Next, we'll hear another excerpt of an oral history from the Black and Appalachia Project, this time with Della Watts, who was interviewed in St. Louis, Missouri, on Labor Day 2018. In this excerpt, Della Watts shares some of her own family story of leaving the Kentucky coal fields for Cleveland, Ohio.
5: My name is Della Watts. I'm originally from Everett, Kentucky. I live in Cleveland, Ohio now. It's a small coal mining area where my dad worked in the coal mines there. And my mother worked as a housekeeper in Kentucky. I went to an all-black school from kindergarten to the eighth grade. And after you got to high school in ninth grade, you went to Harlan to go to high school. But the coal mines, um, in my ninth grade year, coal mines start shutting down. You didn't need as much coal. So my dad came to, he moved to Cleveland and he worked in a steel mill. And after my ninth grade year, he moved all of the family there, and to Cleveland. No, we didn't drive. Uh, Greyhound bus. Um, when we left uh, Kentucky, we had the Greyhound bus, and at that time it was still very segregated. All the blacks had to sit in the back, and when we got on the bus, I never will forget that it was um, halfway here, halfway to Cleveland, rather, a rainstorm came up and my mother couldn't get off the bus to get us water or anything because they had no place for the blacks to go get water. We had to go around the, the back, but the bus stopped at a bus station But we only had about 15 or 20 minutes. And when everybody got off the bus, the black people had to go in the back of the bus station. And you didn't have enough time. So my mother had to get back on the bus. And we wanted water. So it started to rain. And it rained so hard that she let the window down. And she got water in an envelope until we had enough water to drink. Because we wasn't privy enough to go into the bus station where she could have purchased everything that we needed. My my husband's sister, we was best friends in Kentucky. In Kentucky, he was in the service at that time. And when he came home from the military, that's when I met him. He was from Bennington. And his dad, too, had left Kentucky because some of the coal mines were shutting down and the coal miners couldn't provide for their families. So they had to go other cities to find work because if you got four or five kids in your family and you're not working in the coal mines, you had to feed them, you had to call them. But my husband was in the service But his mother and dad and sister, they moved here to Cleveland. Maybe we were about two months apart from one another. But man, his baby sister, we was in the same high school in Kentucky together. We was best friends. Yeah. And we're still best friends. She's here today.
6: When the train, when the train comes I had to look her
1: in eye That was an excerpt of an oral history interview with Della Watts. That interview is part of the ongoing community history project Black and Appalachia. Let's get back to my interview with the project's director William Isom and podcast producer Terrence Harris. This is yeah, I guess the question is just kind of why why is this work important?
0: So the Kind of the importance for this work for me, from my perspective, is there's, you know, we hear and have heard a lot about like black black invisibility in, in Appalachia and the different, you know, the fact that black communities have historically been ignored um, in reference to Appalachia. So the importance of this work for me is kind of twofold and they, these things kind of happen parallel to each other. Uh, kind of the the primary, like, motivator for this work and importance for it is kind of internally for in, communities in the region to be able to have materials and narratives that they can then utilize to tell their own story. So that's kind of like the, the primary motivator for this work because even within communities, for instance, like Elizabethan, Tennessee, there's a vibrant black community, but even people in Elizabethan don't know that there's, like, these very, very old black churches, black institutions. There's like, used to be like a black baseball team, the blue grays in Elizabethan. And so there's like this amazing history in Elizabethan. And as somebody that ripped and ran all over East Tennessee as a young person, I didn't even know that there was a black community in Elizabethan. So I think internally for us to be able to share these narratives with each other, um, as people that live in the region is kind of the primary motivator uh, because also it helps, like, preserve some of these spaces that I think if, if local municipalities know that they're there and know the history behind them, then they're, they're more apt to, like, not knock down a building or, like, maybe, like, turn it into a community center or something. That's the hope anyway. And kind of the other reason that this work is important is, is kind of that, the, the external narrative around Appalachia around like Appalachian studies and uh, this broader academic, oftentimes academic, but sometimes journalistic conversation about Appalachia and what it means to be Appalachian and what our our stories actually are. And I think that's secondary to me for this work, but I think it's just as important to like, make sure that people understand that there have always been a vibrant black population in and through this region. As Creta Brown says, in and through the region so um yeah that's why why I think it's important because also like that invisibility means that you know lynchings didn't occur if there were no black people in Appalachia lynchings didn't occur if there were no black people in Appalachia then there weren't any black schools there weren't any HBCUs if there were no black people in Appalachia then there weren't racial atrocities or people building whole communities on their own you know what i mean there weren't brick makers there weren't brick masons there weren't teachers and scholars so i think that that's you know why we have to like help flush out the the broader story of our region through through telling this this is a, a just a small contribution and a component of telling our stories i think
1: i'm curious about um sort of like you personally what drew you um, into this work. And you mentioned a little bit like growing up in the region and running around and not knowing these histories. Um, but I guess I'm just curious how like your personal or family history and connection to East Tennessee might influence your approach to this
0: work. Yeah. Um, you know, in doing this work, like I, um, I can't escape, like I have to be responsible in this work because people know me and know my family. So I have to like do it right. So that's one, that's one reason. Like if I don't, people know where to find me. Um, But for me personally, like I, you know, for my, you know, my mom's side of the family who's from Wise County, Virginia and Dickinson County, Virginia, it was easy to like trace their, their history. You know, they were mostly white, white whitish, I guess. And they're, they had books on their stuff. Like you could just like go to the history center and find like the book. But my dad's side of the family, there was nothing, there was nothing. And um, so I, you know, I was that kid. I was like that, that kid that would always like get photographs from grandma and my, my parents and kind of, they would be in a shoebox, and I would like, I felt this compulsion to get them and like lay them out and put them in albums and make sure that they were they were taken care of. And um, I think because of that kind of compulsion, um, it kind of motivated me to like try to find flush out my that half of my family's history and um, and through that, kind of this was before the internet, like you couldn't there's no ancestry, and so you would oftentimes just have to go and dig around in the basement of the courthouse and try to find some stuff. And I think because of that, like I got really good at researching black history in the region and it's a there's specific things that and ways that you have to look at our history to be able to find things you can't just go into it as a genealogist or a historian because the thing the pieces parts are so scattered that you may find in the whole book you may find a paragraph about something but that paragraph may have one name in there that can lead you to another book that may have three sentences. And so and that, those three sentences may lead you to the county basement to look up, you know, the the colored voting rolls. And then from there you may be able but now we have all this stuff online, and I think it took me 20 years to be able to find my great-great-granddad who was um, enslaved in Gate City, Virginia. And I was able to find him listed as um, – as property in a slave owner's will. And so, I think kind of my own boot camp kind of trained me to be able to do this work. And I'm lucky enough that some uh, somebody's given me enough space to to let me continue to do it. I'm still waiting for somebody to get hip and be like, nope, what, <laughs> you, what do you think you're doing? <laughs> like, stop that. And so, I don't know if I answered your question, um, But the motivation was, like, once we started producing these documentaries, these were stories that I grew up with. Um, The 8th of August, Emancipation Celebrations, um, these stories of, you know, Morristown College, Knoxville College. These were places where we went and played as, like, you know, kids in middle school. And so I was familiar with those stories, but I was amazed to find out that other people, even within the same community, didn't know these stories. And our stories have been segregated for so long that... Even within the same town, people within that town don't know the black narratives within that city.
1: You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT. I'm Rachel Geringer, and in this episode, we're exploring the nearly 10-year-strong community history project Black in Appalachia. I sat down with the project's director, William Isom, and Terrence Harris, the producer of the upcoming Black in Appalachia podcast. Sometimes people ask me this kind of question about, like, you've done all these interviews, you've talked to all these people, you've heard all these stories, like, do you have favorites or ones that stick out? And I always find that a really hard question to answer because they're all so unique and amazing. But I wonder if there's just, like, for you personally, like, moments where hearing a couple people's stories was just really powerful in a particular way.
0: Yeah, I think um, there's been... Um, and you know, like there's every story, every person that you interview has something that you're like, oh, yeah. like every story. And so, but in particular, there's I've got I, I have favorites. I, I do have favorites. <laughs> um, the there's um, Ar uh, there's an interview I did with Arlen Bowers and Lenny uh, Hamilton Gillespie in Greenville, Tennessee, and man, they were that was the the most joyful and exciting interview for me because they you know a lot a lot of times when you interview you know i'm doing oral histories about with members of the black community and a lot of it i'd say probably three-fourths of those interviews are are mostly not urban based but at least people lived in town Mm -hmm. and so the the thing with the interview with arlen and and lenny were it was really, it felt good to me because I was that country kid. And so, some of the stories that they were talking about and telling about, you know, being ostracized from like town, the town kids because you were too country or you are too bumpkin, I was like, I feel that. I was like, I'm there with you, Arlen. It was like, they call me country too. And so, uh, I, and it was just generally a really sweet, sweet interview, particularly because they wanted to do it together and they were laughing and making fun of each other through the interview, so that was really, really good.
1: Let's hear a segment from that interview. This is Lenny Hamilton Gillespie and Arlen Lee Bowers recorded in Greenville, Tennessee on February 17th, 2018.
3: My name is Lenny Hamilton Gillespie. Arlen Lee
6: Bowers.
3: I was born in uh, here in Greene County. I'm, originally from the county, out in the uh, neighborhood of, uh, like right now it's called West Allen Bridge Road. Um, and then we was more or less on the Asheville Highway, just before you get to the Paradam out there. It's, it's called the Paradam, but it's, I guess it's Nola Chucky. Oh, oh,
0: before you get to the river. Mm-hmm. Okay, and are you from the same neighborhood? Yeah,
7: West Allen Bridge Road.
3: Where was you born? May 28th,
7: 1934, in Green County, yeah.
3: We uh, cut tobacco, milk cows. Uh, at that time we had gardens and stuff out there, you know, because like I said, we couldn't, we didn't have the ability to go to the grocery store and you know, buy groceries and stuff. So a lot of times we would uh, use What we had, like, from the garden, (laughs) there was always time we would have, like, um, my father would, you know, get a possum or a groundhog or something like that. On the, like, on the holidays, like Thanksgiving or whatever, they would kill hogs, uh, go out and hunt rabbits, you know, so that we could, you know, survive. A lot of times, we would always have to wait till the back of, you know, uh, got big enough to cut, bring it into the market. Back at that time, we would have to take it off the stock, tie it up, and put it on the basket, make sure that you had a lot, you know, to make the poundage, that, um, you know, you could make quite a little bit of money, but see, now that you don't have to do that, they can bail it, you know. And a lot of the farmers are sold out of the tobacco. You know, they just, uh, there's a few farmers that still have it out in the country, but not very many, because a lot of them took the tobacco buyout.
7: I used to raise tobacco. And corn, hay, milk, cows, sell milk, tobacco. I've done it all. I grew up on the farm. And I worked on the farm until I was about 19, and my first job I got was with the Green County Highway Department in 1952. And I worked there till, uh, for about 12 or 13 years. And then I went to the city and worked for the city for 33 years. Then I retired in 1999. And now I just raised. and out on the west, Allen Ridge Road, uh, turn off a hit on Johnson Road, first house on the right, the farm, that's where the farm is at now. And we got, we did have 120 some rabbits that we sell, but now we're down to 80, and we sell them at Jonesboro every other Saturday. There's a sale there that we sell rabbits and uh, get a little extra change after you retire. (laughs) Yeah. Meat rabbits, yeah. Of course, I got all kinds. I got meat rabbits, show rabbits, and you name it, and I got it.
3: At the time, they used to have what they call planters warehouse. Uh, It was a co-op warehouse too, wasn't it? Co-op. There was was about 13 warehouses
7: around here, back in, you know, in the 60s when I raised tobacco, you know. But now there's just one, I think, and that's the uh, co-op down out where they Green County buy. Co-op,
3: uh-huh.
7: Yeah, hmm yeah. Which
3: one was yours? Uh-huh. Which was your favorite warehouse?
7: Planner's Three was my favorite, which is still standing. It's out here on the for Highway now. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 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 I love farming because I mean back in that was the only way poor people could make
3: it, you know. And I'm proud I grew up on the farm. My mother's maiden name was uh, Roxy Anderson. She would go out here to my grandmother was I guess maybe uh, something out here at Macedonia, the church next door. And uh, they would go there. Uh, then um, she, she got married to my dad. His name was, was Roland Hamilton. He was a preacher. Oh. Anyways, we were preacher's kids. Mm. Uh, uh, they got married. Uh, I have, I have had, let um, see there was, six of us. My two brothers has passed away. My other three sisters are still alive, you know. So we've had, at the time when, you know, my dad was a preacher, we had a curfew. We had to be home by 11.30 at night. A lot of times we didn't make it. I had a brother that always tried to sneak in through the window, him and his buddies. But one day my sister, that's next to me, saw them trying to sneak into the window. She went and told my dad, she said, dad, there's somebody trying to break in the house. We knew exactly who it was. So he got up, went to the window and his buddies dropped him and daddy pulled my brother through the window. <laughs> so we had to, he had to stay up until the next morning we went to church. And then when we came back from church, he went to bed and slept and my sister <laughs> that's next to me. Mm. She said, she bugged him. She said, we need to borrow your car to go learn how to drive. He said, no. So she kept bugging him until she get the keys, and we'd get on the asphalt highway. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> we were bad kids. <laughs> <laughs> the gospel
6: train is coming. I hear it round the curve. Losing dollars, steaming brakes, and she's straining every nerve. Once you get on board, little children, get on board. Once you get on board, children, children, there's room for many more. Once you get on
1: board. That was an excerpt of an oral history interview with Arlen Lee Bowers and Lenny Hamilton Gillespie, recorded in Greenville, Tennessee on February 17th, 2018. That interview is part of the Archive of the Black in Appalachia Project. Next up, we'll get back to my interview with the project's director, William Isom, and podcast producer, Terrence Harris.
0: One of the insights that I have had in doing these oral histories and conducting interviews, whether it's in, you know, like Harlan County or Greene County or Hawkins County, Tennessee or Bristol, was how connected the black communities were in Like, for instance, like the black communities in Harlan County had strong connections to the black communities in Hamblin County, Tennessee. And there was lots of moving back and forth between those communities, and the schools played each other during segregation. And so that kind of further solidified those ties. And it's been amazing for me to see how interconnected in southwest Virginia, eastern Kentucky, and eastern Tennessee the black communities were with each other. Um, the borders didn't really mean much for the black communities. I've never heard any any interview where the border actually meant anything. And I think that that's really been a strong insight that I've been trying to like pick at and, and try to figure out. Like, how do we illustrate that that interconnectivity that the black communities had? Um, you know, the kids in Gate City, Virginia, during desegregation got bused to uh, Kingsport to go to school. The kids in, um, in Claiborne County, Tennessee, got bussed across Clinch Mountain to go to school in Morristown. And that's Claiborne County, Tennessee. The, kid, the, the kids in um, Lee County, Virginia, came over to Claiborne County to, for like 8th of August celebration in Claiborne County. And so you had, you know, people in Harlan County went fishing at Cherokee Lake and Hamlin and Granger County. So like all these things are, in the same way that they're inextric. you can't separate black Appalachian culture from Appalachian culture. You can't separate these black communities into states. Hmm. Um, that's been a really interesting insight to me. And I'm trying to figure out how to illustrate that. I don't know. Yeah. It's just fresh. Yeah, Yeah, that is
1: really
0: interesting.
1: Well, so you've talked a little bit about this but I'm curious if there's more you could say about what kind of like, so the the current work of the project um, is versus what's kind of like coming down the pike in the future.
0: The current work of the project is is continuing to produce these short documentaries. And now with more and more social media, the documentaries are getting shorter and shorter mm-hmm. because people's attention spans are, you got to get it in, right? Mm-hmm. And so continuing to produce these short documentaries and continuing to develop this community history database. And geographically, we're, we're looking to kind of hone, hone back in towards Knox County and the counties around that, but then also continue to branch out our work, particularly in Southwestern Virginia and Southeast Ohio, and hopefully West Virginia. That's like, the promised land we hope to get there sometime uh but um
1: as a west virginian i appreciate
0: that yeah yeah <laughs> and so um yeah and continuing to 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 do mapping work and these other components so you know this work is not done like i'm not the one i'm just like one of the people that helps keep the bureaucracy organized um but we've got like a, a whole team of folks particularly um We've got a historian, Kate Kelly. Um, we've got a GIS person, uh, Devin Kelly, uh, no relation. Kelly Jolly kind of helps us out with our, um, our culture and arts uh, research, and she also does some production work with us. And we've got um, Rebecca Howard, who does our digital collections management. And, uh, and she also like manages the School of Information Science graduate students, which we get from the University of Tennessee. University of Tennessee has been really helpful in providing support for the project through the School of Information Sciences graduate program, which is good, number one, because they're grown folks. And number two, uh, I'm not an archivist and I'm not an information scientist. And so there's some of these things, as a media maker, I should not be doing. And so that's why we've got these other people kind of hopping in and doing work. Um, and then, you know, we also have, Uh, a handful of kind of county level volunteers that help bottom line different components in carter county and uh sullivan county kingsport and bristol uh, morristown greenville and so we have volunteers that are kind of on the ground there that help direct the work because community members are ultimately the ones that invite us in to do this stuff um but we also have like uh a podcast coming up, which is really exciting. It's called Black and Appalachia the podcast. And we've got uh, a good team there Dr. Inkeshi Alameen, a uh, sociologist at the University of Tennessee, um, and Angela Dennis, a journalist with Black with No Chaser and some other outlets, and also uh, Terrence, Har- uh, Ter- Terrence Harris, who's a, um, a media producer from from Chicago but now he's a he's a Knoxville guy Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: I wonder if um, you want to talk about the podcast kind of it's it's not out yet but it's gonna be this year right yeah. okay yeah. Um. so how's it going
2: <laughs> so it's going really good so we have a pretty solid team here um, Dr. Nkeshi Alamin and Angela Dennis are our two hosts. Um, and they are here to basically bring in the narrative of exactly what William is saying, is telling those stories in history of black culture through Appalachia and bringing it into the modern times and trying to make sense of it. Um, one of the things that we kind of find ourselves as uh, blacks here specifically, uh, is that the more that we discover, the more questions that we have. And we feel though as if a podcast is a good way to start opening up that narrative, especially for the millennials' uh, culture, because we we more people are starting to go into uh, or spawn interest into listening into these uh, podcasts. So uh, with the help of East Tennessee PBS, uh, William, and other people who are, you know, Helping out with getting that information, and then we have the context of um, uh, Dr. Elamine, uh, is a sociology major of trying to break it down and make sense Of what that information is and then we have Angela who's giving her perspective as a journalist of Also asking those hard questions and getting that research and really doing a lot of groundwork into finding out what what is the story, What it? what is being lost? Um, myself as well, too, uh, I'm not originally from the Southeast uh, at all. I'm from Chicago, so a lot of these stories are uh, eye-opening for me, um, especially now living in Knoxville where black ke- people are scarce. But when you hear these stories, you're finding out that a lot of these communities are completely deprived of uh, blacks, but were completely built up by blacks, or once owned by blacks, by, by business owners, by uh, teachers and uh, workers, and so on, so that, that we're trying to shed light into that with a really cool and creative and uh, modern way uh, podcast is a very good way to approach this so I'm really f- excited to be a part of this project
1: so when it like what's the kind of like release schedule or like when can people start listening to it
2: so right now we're we're f- in the formulating stage, um, we're currently knocking on our first episode. Um, the Black and Appalachia podcast will be slated for release sometime in August, maybe early, mid, or late August. We're not sure yet, but we want to make sure that we want to get enough material to provide to people and also set the pace for ourselves. Um, you know, although we have a lot of people on board with this, it just takes the time to gather that information, that history, and really pay homage and respect to those stories that were once lost, and we we feel really prideful to be the ones shedding light on this. And with that said, we want to make sure that we do right by those lost stories um, by doing that research and really getting into the, the information that is forgotten. Um, the, these these are people who, you know, worked hard for their history to end up erased. And when you think about that, that's kind of heartbreaking because these are people who, through adversity, really try hard. Black pastors who try to build up communities and uh, like I said, by teachers who encourage uh, self-love and self-respect, and also education, which was not available, accessible to a lot of younger Black people growing up, and now we have professors and we have business owners and we have um, artists who are coming out of this, but nobody knows the the history behind it. So. Um, kind of circle back into what you're saying. Yeah, the, the podcast is coming. Um, I feel really good about it. Um, I'm helping out a lot with the composition, actually music of the show and recording and editing as well too. Um, and it, it's really cool to see it all come together and really bring it into a modern context of, you know, this is the history, but this is how we ended up here and what what here looks like what what brought us to people like in, uh angela dennis or nkeshi um so when when we're looking into that we we have to make sure that we're staying diligent about the information that we're gathering so
1: those are kind of all the questions that i came with but i always like to ask people like what did we miss what are things that people should know that we didn't get to or was there anything you kind of wanted to talk about that didn't come up
0: Uh, everything that we make or produce is free and available online and so we try to put everything up as as quickly as possible uh, up on black or sometimes we throw stuff just up on Instagram or Facebook and so we want to make sure everything that we make just put it out to the world so if you want a DVD we'll mail you one for free if you want some stuff for your library just shoot us an email and we'll send stuff out um it doesn't do anybody any good if it's not free so
2: we'll send it out um also as uh is saying you can definitely make sure that you follow along i know a lot of people go on to instagram so make sure you follow along on black and appalachia on instagram where you can get follow-up as far as in uh, the progress of the production for the Black Appalachia podcast on there, you'll be able to see a lot of information from the crew who is involved as well, too. Like we said, we're going to be slated for release in August, uh, so we're going to have a lot of behind-the-scenes work and production uh, that people are are going to be able to get involved and Hopefully, we can get some live recordings done as well, too, as we build up a, I, I guess a core demographic that is interesting to this Um, we're going to be touching on a lot of um, good topics, sensitive topics, and hard topics.
1: That was William Isom and Terrence Harris, both of Knoxville, Tennessee, talking about the Black in Appalachia Project, an ongoing community history project documenting Black communities and histories in central and southern Appalachia. To learn more about the project, you can visit blackinappalachia.org. You've been listening to Mountain Talk here on WMMT, and if you'd like to hear this or previous episodes again, you can find them on our website at WMMT.org, or you can download Mountain Talk as a podcast from SoundCloud or Stitcher. Songs on this episode come from another Knoxvillean, Sparky Rucker, off of his 1977 album, Cold and Lonely on a Train. That album was produced by Apple Shop's own June Apple Recordings. It's no longer in print, but you can find digital versions of the songs on Bandcamp. In order of appearance, we heard Walkin' Blues, Crossroads, Love in Vain, and Palette on the Floor. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio.
6: Make it so, make it make it right behind baby cause your eyes are brown I love you baby cause your eyes are brown I love you baby cause your eyes are brown You know you're tailor-made, you ain't no hand-me-down Won't you make me down, keep pallet on the floor Make me down, keep pallet on the floor I'll cut you, stab you too. Ain't no telling what.